0: To what makes you different and therefore if you think about that then you know i'm not the serious guy i'm not the sexy brooding guy i'm not the slaphand hand guy i'm the mind reader and actually if i make that mind reading high energy high impact fun entertaining and silly then it's a real point of difference to anything else
1: you're listening to the mystery behind magic the podcast for ever learning magicians Brought to you by Chanad Kish and Robbie Stevens. Hello and welcome to the mystery behind magic. I'm Chanad Kish.
2: And I'm Robbie Stevens, and today we had Chris Cox on the podcast, The Mind Reader Who Can't Read Minds.
1: Yeah, we talked about how he got into mentalism and why he only performs mentalism, um, you know, why he performs uh, this sort of silly fun style of mentalism and not, you know, a serious style of mentalism that we've mostly seen before. uh, And some of the positives and negatives that have come out of performing this, you know, silly fun style of mentalism and so much more. What did you think of the episode, Robbie?
2: Yeah, I really liked it, because with mentalists, I often kind of think that they're going to have to be serious, but that's just not the case with Chris, and it's kind of opened my eyes in that now I think if I wanted to do mentalism, I I could, and it's all about kind of building the story to make it believable.
1: Yeah, you're 100% right there. If you want to find out more about Chris, you can go on his website, magiccox.com, or you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at magiccox, and I'll have some links linked in the description. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. (laughs)
2: Today we are joined with Chris Cox. How are you today, Chris?
0: I am excellent. Thanks for having me on. Hello. I'm literally just writing down chanad. That's how I pronounce it. (laughs) I'm learning.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Now, let's go back right to the beginning. Where did it all start? Uh, So
0: I was 11 years old and I got a letter that was delivered by uh, an owl and then seven years at Hogwarts, Hufflepuff and Proud, and now I'm a mind reader. Simple as that i mean i wish the thing is here's the thing right um that's the answer by the way if anyone uh takes the answer i will uh, be very angry but um that's the answer <laughs> i've written to give in interviews because it's perfectly informed for my character it and it's a better answer than the real answer which is the same answer everyone will say to you which is i got a magic kit when i was a kid kept playing with it there we go
1: and what kept your interest for magic going
0: ah that's a good question um I want, to, here's the thing, I love performing and entertaining and I uh, was a kid who was in like shows and would be on TV shows and in like stage shows and stuff and and I um always did magic alongside the side of that and always loved magic but was never part of the world of magic or magic clubs or societies or would go to conventions or anything um, but while I was at school, sort of 15, 16 I started doing psychology and realised uh, if I mix that with kind of mentalism techniques it looked like more than mentalism uh, and then sort of kept doing mentalism because for me it was all about performance and the side of magic which didn't really interest me was slights or anything like that for me it was all about performing and entertaining and i realized that <laughs> i can't sing i can't dance i can barely act and i'm not funny enough to be a stand-up but if i found uh, an approach with mentalism that was different then that would be a way forward for me to be able to perform and get to be on stage uh, without any other form of talent <laughs>
1: great and um, what got you interested in mentalism
0: I think just the idea that it's ninety percent performance, ten percent method. Uh, I don't want to spend my time learning a slight or standing in front of a mirror for days um that doesn't interest me in the slightest. What does interest me is how to entertain an audience, how to make them laugh, how to give them a moment of uh of magic, how to make them uh how to sort of make it a interesting process. That's the thing that I find enjoyable is just getting out on the stage and doing it i don't find the practicing a slight for the sights for the sake of knowing a slight or something that just has never appealed to me um, who, who and therefore yeah mentalism was just all performance
2: who have been your biggest inspirations
0: uh Normally, not really anyone in magic. I suppose, like actually, like Penn and Teller, um, because I remember buying one of their VHSs back in the day when VHSs were a thing, and they were the first time I realized, oh, magic can be funny and different and irreverent. And you no, know, I'm very lucky now that I get to be, you know, I'm, I get to be friends with them and I get to hang out with them. Um, but definitely, without a doubt, their inspiration then and now and their work ethic now is is phenomenal. Um, equally John Vanderpuit, who's Piff. His work ethic, you know, we did. Edinburgh at the same time. Um, he's gone off and done amazing things. I'm so proud to see how great he's done, and that comes from him finding a unique voice and a unique character. Um, the actor Mark Rylance, uh, the comedian Tim Minchin. Um, and then in Sort of the World of Magic, obviously you can't be a mentalist without having Darren's shadow cast all over you, and without a doubt, I wouldn't have a career if Darren didn't do what he did. Um, Andy Nyman, his stuff, uh, Chetter Hadwick slash Stephen Long, a lot of his stuff really inspired me. Um that I kind of uh I really like. Who else do I like? Uh, there's a there's probably a list yeah, they're, they're sort of the ones I suppose where there's a I feel like that they've i they've inspired who I've become as a performer, I suppose.
1: And why did you keep with mentalism? Was it just that you didn't have to almost practice as much and you could get out and perform faster? Um,
0: no. Well here's the thing actually, you do have to practice as much. You just practice a different thing. So for me, I spend my time scripting, writing, practicing, being on stage and those things rather than practicing a slight. Um, uh, But you can, you know, you can get on stage faster, I suppose. But, you know, there is I was lucky that I started in mentalism a long time ago. You know, Darren, when I was started mentalism, Darren hadn't done his first special. Um, But very shortly after I was playing around mentalism, he started he did his first special and and. And then, sort of, my career, I've started doing mentalism alongside him. And obviously, him being hugely, you know, I'm definitely like my first Edinburgh show. There were no other magicians in Edinburgh that year, it was just me. Uh, there was definitely no other mind readers. Now, I look at the Edinburgh Festival and there's pages and pages of magicians and mind readers um, doing stuff. And I think that uh, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought. and completely forgotten the original question. Yes, is my answer. What was the question again?
1: <laughs> um, it's been is a long day. Uh, what? <laughs> Why did you keep with mentalism?
0: Oh, yeah. um, Did I answer that? I don't know. I suppose it's... Yeah, oh, I kept did, with yeah. it. Yeah, just because that... It was all performance for me. And I felt like I was, you know, like everyone... Early in their career and like some people still now, you know, my early stuff was very influenced by the stuff Darren and Andy did. And I wanted to keep working on it to find my voice and my way of doing mentalism differently. And I felt that the only way to do that was to keep getting on stage, keep doing runs at the Edinburgh Festival and find the things that are me rather than my version of something Darren had done. Oh, it's all gone very quiet, my end. you still Yeah, back? I think his. Oh, yeah, I think think his Wi-Fi nice. just cut out. Brilliant! I can wait for him to uh,
1: return. Um, I think he's back. Yeah, just just go back. Sorry no, about that, yeah, back, okay. I was just slagging <laughs> you off all that time. Don't
0: yeah.
1: I? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a question, Robbie?
2: Oh yeah. Um, I was kind of like interested in. Um. I guess how your how has your mentalism develops over time.
0: Um. I've just found my voice and my style of doing it. And there's no real. I wonder whether I can pinpoint any moments where that happened. Mostly it just came through doing it and finding the stuff that worked and the stuff that the audience enjoyed and the stuff that I found fun. And I naturally gravitate towards fun. And I I suppose the key things for me were not care, realizing that I don't care how people think I do it. And I don't care that people think I can do it for real. Most mentalists want people to believe they have a special power. I don't give a damn. I don't care how they think it's done. Um, So quite early, I found the phrase mind reader who can't read minds because then I'm sort of, Mm. it's a catch all. And now, and then just, therefore by not caring how they think it's done meant i could just think right what's the fun way to do this what's the most entertaining way to do this um jonathan goodwin was a huge help to me in when we were doing uh impossible in the west end and on tour in helping me find those moments of voice and matt edmondson who i've worked with for years at the radio um and as a uh is a great friend he really helped as well in just shaping those bits of me that uh inherently to me that no one can copy because they're so who I am and come from me. And therefore that naturally led me on a path as to who my character would be and and what my processes would be. And, you know, the last sort of three, four years, uh, in doing the illusionists, I've I've toned everything back to one simple phrase, which is probably gonna have to change uh post pandemic, which is um mind reading works for me when i uh, touch you so if i make a physical connection if i touch you you touch me we get a connection we get into sync and i can read your mind so it's time to touch me and then everything is based on a funny <laughs> process of touching on making a connection and that's my that's how it's done there we go it don't matter and i don't care whether people think it's real or not often by doing that people actually think oh well it must be psychology or it must be this and none of that cares i just want to give them enough to go all right that's what it is i can now just enjoy the process and enjoy it and i can make all the process myself as a performer fun because mentalism is process so how do you make that process more enjoyable rather than just 10 minutes of boring process for a quick reveal and also it allows people to just go like all right i don't have to worry about working out and thinking oh it could be this it could be i can just enjoy and be entertained by it so for your zoom shows kind of what, what have you been doing for that I've not been touching people for a start. That's annoying. Um <laughs> I uh I've been doing so I sort of only do corporate Zoom shows. I'm working on a kind of public y theater-y version of it. Um, but I've been um I've been basically doing it's all mentalism, because that's all I ever do, but it's just, you know, the touching stuff's not there. But there's routines that I used to do on stage that I've reworked. Um it's about for me fun all of it is down to it being fun and silly and entertaining but still really strong magic within that so actually there's only what five tricks I think I do in my 30 minute show maybe even four sometimes um but it's all about making a connection with people and I am at my best when I'm ad-libbing when I'm being witty when I'm chatting with someone and making humor out of that situation and that is all part of the process of a trick and from that everything else grows so that's kind of my main operation with those shows is to make them fun and entertaining and and have some moments from the stage show and then some uh some stuff which i've created just for zoom and you know there's a finite amount of stuff we can do i'm doing some stuff that everyone's doing i'm doing some stuff that i think is unique to me but the stuff that everyone's doing i'm doing it in such a unique way it will feel totally different to someone who might have seen someone do a trip with a bm project or something before and i'm also trying to avoid the things that everyone's doing it's like i try not to do uh something like a wiki test or something. Um mm. because no matter how much you dress that up, if someone's seen another virtual magic show, they go, like, oh well I sort of get what that trick is. Um that said, uh uh I've got sort of if I have to do it in a longer show or something, I've got like my way of doing it, which inherently comes from character um rather than anything else.
1: Yeah, um we I sort of wanna get into the whole sort of touching thing in a bit and in more detail. But it sounds so weird perform. when someone says it like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, when you perform, as you said before as well, you don't pretend or you don't say you have, you know, magical abilities to read people's mind. And I would say it's quite a laid back version of mentalism. So maybe, you know, you could be doing the same stuff as another mentalist, but you would perform it almost, you know, very almost silly and, and a, in a funny way. How did you get up with that? Or why do you do it, first of all?
0: Um, Yeah, why do you do that? Good question. Uh, Why do I? Um, I wonder that. Uh, That's interesting, that (laughs) laid back approach. It's the thing is, my stuff is not laid back in a relaxed way. You know, it's very high energy, in your face, almost cartoon character-esque. And I tone that up or down depending on the type of show that I'm doing. So like, you know, when I'm playing a couple of thousand seats in The Illusionist, everything is slightly more heightened. Um, And I think it, you know it just comes out of my natural character and not trying to hide that but just to make that better and bigger on stage and to create a differentiator between me and anyone else and you know uh, uh the illusionist is a good thing as a performer to think about because i never thought i'd be in that show and i'm delighted that i've got to tour the world doing that show and hope very much to go back to it when it restarts if it restarts um but the thing about that show is your job is to serve the show and make the show as good as possible. And you are there with seven other magicians, sometimes eight, sometimes five. Um, so what makes you different? And therefore, if you think about that, then, you know, I'm not the serious guy. I'm not the sexy brooding guy. I'm not the sleight hand guy. I'm the mind reader. And actually, if I make that mind reading high energy, high impact, fun, entertaining and silly, then it's a real point of difference to anything else um, within that show. So therefore, it makes me very easy to be like oh I, I get who he is equally my whole look is constructed you know it's basically who i am as a person but i've heightened that look so that when i come on stage within a few seconds you should totally get who i am and be like oh i understand who this guy is so there's no hard work for the audience there it's like a uh, like a good piece of theater or a good piece of play you should know who that character is intrinsically um uh, so i suppose that's why it's just to be different and to have fun with it and find a version of me that suits that world rather than me trying to be someone else or thinking, oh, the audience might want this and might want that. Like, and also I'm, you know, I get so bored watching mentalism, which is all process and all serious and all, you know, trying to pretend I can read your body language and stuff. And that's not to say I don't have bits where my process is slightly relying on it, looking like it's body language or looking like it's this, but it's a fun way of doing it and a kind of tongue in cheek way. Um, and audiences actually enjoy that a lot of the time because they like to feel like they know what's going on, even if that's not really the method. But it can be like watching a lecture or something sometimes. So it's um, it's just trying to find the things that I like and I don't like. And I think often with magic, it's better to know what you don't like than what you like, because then you can try and avoid those things and think about why you don't like them. And it's all personal taste. Some people will like what I do. Some people will hate it. I'm very aware that I throw away a lot of very strong material that others would get a lot more out of. But I'm happy with that because I think the bigger picture for me is more important.
2: With your kind of like fun, entertaining mentalism versus the serious mentalism, do you think you have less authority than you would on stage? And I guess how do you like direct um, so you have as much authority as possible with your kind of mentalism?
0: So I have less authority um, in terms of the impressiveness of what I'm doing. So I think the reveal I might get uh, might not be as strong as someone who's trying to pretend it's or trying to show it's serious or real or something. What I do have still is total authority over stage and the audience and my audience interaction and fully in command of everything they do and being in total charge of that audience. Um, And that comes out of 15, 20 years of being on stage and performing and playing those big rooms and getting that flat t- flight time in so that even though my character is low status and the idea is that you, you kind of are rooting for me. I'm still, you're still comfortable going like this guy knows what he's doing, even if he's a bit silly and a bit stupid with it. It's not like you're uncomfortable going, Oh, is he going to be any good? You know, there is an, an approach that I very much take, you know, one of the biggest laughs in my show is quite early on after the first reveal, I say, oh, and you thought I was going to suck. And it gets a big laugh because they don't think that, but they don't think it's going to be as good as it is. So when I get a first proper mm. strong reveal and, you know, I literally have a, a, a trick where a reveal in it is like a little throwaway moment for me that, you know, someone might build a whole 10 minute routine out of that one moment. And for me, it's just a little bit along the way. It's a bit in, uh, in my dressing room trick where I just reveal where they've been on holiday. And it's a, you know, it's an open prediction. They, I write down. Uh, just think, where's the last place you went on holiday slash vacation? I write it down. I show the audience. I then get them to say it. They haven't seen what I down. And, you know, it's literally a, a throwaway moment in the middle of a routine. But it makes people know that I know what I'm doing and that authority can still come from a low status character. And also, look, the type of shows I get to do these days, luckily, means that authority is there because I'm on stage with all this hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of set and lighting and video war and people are paying big money for tickets and they're coming to Broadway or something, you know, you are inherently mm. authoritative because you are on that stage performing in part of that show. So a lot of the hard yeah. work's done for me really.
1: <laughs> um, and do you think your sort of silly and fun style of mentalism is as powerful because they almost don't expect it from you than more serious forms of mentalism?
0: Yes and no. I think definitely there are times where it's more powerful because they don't expect it. And there are times where it's uh, weaker because I don't give it the credence it deserves. You know, it is without a doubt true that if I spend two minutes working with you and building up to telling you the place you went on, favorite place you've been on holiday, that is more impressive because we've bought along. We're a lot if you buy into it and you go along for the ride it's a more enjoyable conclusion where if i go where's the best place you've been on holiday is it the bahamas yes great but you know there is less of an amazement Mm. but there's more of a residual amazement when they think about it afterwards and it depends you know that is a little moment within a bigger trick for me um what i do however in like my big q a style routine is you know i'm doing in 12 15 minutes what many people might do in an hour in terms of material but I'm knowing where those moments are that I really want to hit home. And that would be the, like the ending of that routine has to probably hit home uh, and have a big wow moment. So I'm kind of building up towards that and I'm almost not letting people, I'm just being a little bit relentless and not giving them the moments to go, Oh my God, until the very end when I want it all to happen at once. Does that answer the question?
1: Yeah. 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 Um... And what are the, sort of the advantages you've sort of mentioned a few, but what do you think are the main advantages advantages or why have you stuck with this silly, this sort of silly fun style of mentalism?
0: Um, Because it's me and partly no one else is doing it like that. So I can pick up a bit of material, put it in my character. And even if it's a similar material that someone else is doing in terms of an effect, it will feel very different. Um, Partly because I've worked so long in developing that performance side of me um. And it's, you know, what I'm saying to is I'm not saying, oh, everyone who's doing serious mentalism should go out and do funny mentalism and entertaining and silly mentalism. Um, I'm not saying that. You, all I'm saying is you need to find what's true to you and who you are as a performer. Because the audience, you know, when I was 21 doing a show in Edinburgh trying to make you believe that I could look at your eyes and know what you're thinking, no one's buying that. Because how the hell's a 21-year-old going to do that? It's it's sort of, it, they're not really buying it. But you may be... You know, if that approach, you go, you have to think about who you are and what your audience think of you. So maybe if you are young, you go, okay, look, here's a weird thing that happened. I got hit on the head when I was six, and I just got good at making guesses. Let me, and you know, it's something an audience can buy into that. Um, there's a truth within that, or at least a believable truth, I suppose. Um, and a lot of it comes off sort of theatrical acting type approaches. Um, but yeah, I think it's it is all about finding what's true to you and just because i say i i think mentalism should be funny and silly and entertaining that's i just think that's how i should do it and that's what i like to see and it doesn't mean everyone should be doing it that way and it's and it is a harder way of doing it i suppose it's much easier just to try and do a slightly more serious approach because there's less work that goes into that um but i suppose it all comes down to who are you as a performer and what do you think the audience will believe about you and your character
2: so for i guess people that want to get into mentalism but are kind of quite young what would you recommend as kind of the best ways
0: to go about making it um it's just doing it like making believe but it all comes out of doing it and you should hopefully you know if you film yourself and record yourself and watch back you should start to feel what audiences are buying and what they're not buying um and where the truth is there has to be a character based truth and that might be a part of you that you exacerbate or a bit of a a thing of you you think you've made up and that you know made up thing can be a truth if you play it as true um and you know there is no harm in your early days everyone does it you sort of replicate someone because that's the easy option and within that you'll start to find moments that are you and hopefully bring them into it um and it all depends what you want to do as a performer where you see yourself for me it was only ever stage before i only do stage performances uh maybe cabaret uh maybe used to be in back in the day do some comedy clubs but always stage never close up never walk around never parlor always stage or tv um and that was it so i knew that 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 affects who my approach of what it is and how i do it my character does not suit those other situations but if you're doing close up or walk around or something like that then you have to think about who you are in that situation and also just think about like how you want to connect with people and how you want them to think of you and how they want to remember you, I want people to like me, I want to entertain them, I want to feel like they're like, "Oh, they really buy into me and think I'm a fun guy to be around. Some people might want some the audience actually to feel slightly more standoffish and a bit afraid. You know they're all different theatrical approaches um but with mentalism, so much of it is theater you know that uh, barry richardson book theater of the mind there is that in it and you know one of my greatest loves and really actually a bigger love than magic is theater so i naturally come at it from that that place and look at plays and musicals and stuff i love watching on stage and try and work out why i love that and what approaches from that i can learn and put into what i do as a performer
1: have you taken any acting classes or have you done any musicals or shows before
0: Uh, I saw I studied drama at university. I did some acting as a kid. Uh, I was in shows as a kid. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't act very well. Um, uh, So I kind of studied it when I was younger, but then uh, mainly study through watching. Uh, You know, I've read a lot of acting books. I'm interested in character process and things like that. But also, you know, I uh, was brought on board as part of the magic team on Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and actually watching those actors find their voice and their style of performance through that rehearsal process was fascinating and dealing with those actors and those lovely people was was so interesting to me and it was great cause one time when I was doing the uh, the illusionist in the west end a load of the Harry Potter guys came up to see it and we were talking after and I explained to them how I always feel like a fraud in their rehearsal rooms because I'm just going out on stage performing shouting at the audience telling them the words I wrote down and doing a trick and they felt the exact same way in that they feel like frauds because they're just going out reading someone else's words out loud and pretending to feel an emotion. And It's interesting how we each saw the other person as the better version of what we do. But actually, there is two different worlds. And when you realise what you are, I realised I'm a performer, and not an actor, then that opens up what it is you're going to do.
2: With, With Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, how did you kind of get into the consultancy for that? Because I I I haven't seen it. So like, kind of, what did you have to do with the magic part? So was there kind of actual magic in the show?
0: Yeah, the show has a huge amount of magic in it. Um, No tricks, but tricks. You know, the idea that they live in a world of magic, so everything is an effect. And I'm very lucky that I uh saw the show when it first opened and adored it i genuinely thought it was the best magic show in the west end uh weirdly by at the same time i was doing a magic show in the west end but it's an incredible piece of theater um and i uh spoke to chris and jamie jamie who was the original magic creator on it and chris's associate and we stayed in touch over the years um i just congratulated them on a great piece of work and then they were bringing in the second or third london cast and needed um someone as part of the magic team to help teach those actors the tricks to watch the show to note it to make sure the magic is still impressive and strong Uh, and they very kindly brought me on board to help out with that so I you know I'm doing no creative creation of anything but I'm there to teach the actors how to do the magic I get them to understand the thinking of magician and make sure that that show is uh, the magic is never revealed in the show and those effects are as strong as they should be for the audience night after night um, eight shows a week.
1: Because those actors do quite love magic when they do shows like that, do they ever get into magic after?
0: yeah some do actually um there are definitely some people in uh the harry Potter cast who do magic um as uh i worked on a production of barnum at the many a chocolate factory again with chris fisher who's one just an amazing person and great theatrical uh consultant for magic and you know there's a guy called aemon who was in that who had done magic as a kid and you know we reignited his love of magic now and now he does you know he, he was in Mamma mia and alongside while doing that he do close-up gigs and stuff like that and really kind of found magic again it's um some people uh uh, don't care for it, but some people kind of gravitate towards it um, and, you know, and see it as a different way to to have a a, a creative outlet.
1: Now, um, before you mentioned uh, that you found quite early on um, the phrase of uh, you can't read minds. Um,
0: yeah, mind reader who can't how read did, minds.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did that come around?
0: I don't really remember. Um, It was in for my first Edinburgh show, so very early on, that I put as a tagline. And I suppose it came out of fi- wanting to find a fun way to explain what I do. And I never wanted to say I'm a mind reader, because I don't believe anyone can read minds. And I wanted to give myself a a kind of theatrical catch-all, which allows people to know, look, this isn't real, it's just part of this world. Um, and that sort of just, I think I was a phrase I started using and it stuck. Um, You know, it is what it is. I am, there is nothing to it. I'm a mind reader who can't read minds. So I'm just a nothing, but within it, you go, okay, well, so if you can't read minds, then I'm using all these other techniques to make it look like I can read your mind. Um, And I used to for a while, use that in impossible when we did that in the West end and I think in the illusionists. Um, But I don't say that in those shows anymore because I don't feel there is time to, fully explain that to an audience and it can be a bit confusing hence why i just go it works when i make a physical connection with you in those shows because in that world it's just easier as a standalone thing like that
2: so i guess like when an audience kind of first sees you on a poster or something and you've got that that slogan and then they go into the theater to see you how do you think it do you think it affects the perception of you to begin with
0: yeah, I think all of that stuff is very important. You know, people need to feel safe in what they're seeing or buying a ticket for. And in the same way, all of that stuff, from the moment someone walks in the theatre, you know, in The Illusionist, they walk in, the stage is preset, you've got the sound design, the lighting. People are... I know what they're starting know what the show is going to be before it starts in the same way if you're coming into my show uh solo show you know what you see on stage is designed specifically for the opening the music all of that stuff is to help you get a sense of what this is so you're having to do less work as an audience member when the show is on you're having to think less it's just sort of presented to you as this is it and therefore you kind of understand it straight away so like I said earlier, the moment I come on stage and the illusionists, I you know, my opening gag, the way I come on stage, the the flappiness of my body at that point very clearly just <laughs> dis- differentiates me from anyone you've seen before and makes you go, Oh, I get who this is. Um and all of that is yeah, is important, whether that's, you know, in your poster saying you're a mind reader who can't read minds. You know, even the post of a look of a show, all of that all of that stuff which is your brand for one of a less not sort of crappy term, um, is important to help an audience understand what it is they're seeing and who you are because if they're having to think about that during the show then they're gonna not be paying as much attention to the actual show
2: With, with the idea of kind of differentiating yourself um i was watching a clip of you and at the end of the show you kind of name all the audience members that kind of came up on stage yeah i guess why did you decide that you should do that and i guess how do you do it as well
0: um, I do it by uh, I I tell you why it's because I used to be absolutely awful and I still sort of am sometimes at remembering people's names and unless I really made the effort to do it I would forget everyone's name on stage all the time. So I gave myself the challenge of remembering their names too. At the end, I thought it would just be a nice thing. I thought two things. I thought it'd be a nice thing to. Thank everyone who took part in the show at the end of your thing, because very much what I do is me and the audience playing together. It's not me showing off. Oh, aren't I amazing? Look what I can do! It's look what we can do. So therefore, I want to give them their moment to thank them. Those people who helped in the show. I also thought it was um within character to be a uh, an amazing trait that. Oh my God, this guy just can remember everyone's names, and it's not like it's a trick or anything. But it's just like, oh yeah, of course I should be able to remember everyone's names if I can do the stuff you've just seen me do that would be a thing I should be able to do. Um, uh, so they, so it came out of that. And then I just sort of taught myself how to remember people's names, which is just, you know, there are lots of techniques. There's a Harry Lorraine book on it. But, you know, basically what I used to realise I'd do is I'd say to someone, hi, what's your name? And in saying that, I then wouldn't listen to them because I'd be thinking about what I'm doing next. And it just meant I had to engage slightly more with that person and listen to them and get their name and find various techniques to get them to say their name again if I do forget it so I can re-remember it without me going, sorry, I've forgotten your name. What was it?
1: yeah that's especially true with mentalists you know you can if you say you can read your minds and then you forget the audience member that's quite awkward but um you've mentioned this before as well and you have i'm gonna say you do quite a weird sort of way of reading people's mind um so like licking their ears and getting them to drink water and spit it back into the bottle um it's very much. And then I style. drink from that bottle. I don't. Yeah, have drinks, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, how did you come up with that?
0: Um, what would, what can I do that no one else is going to do any of those things? You're not going to see Darren do that. You're not going to see any other mentalist do that. So it came out of that um, and going. But that all came out of a bigger question is how do I make process fun and interesting and memorable? Because so much of mentalism is process. That bit has to be the fun bit. The reveal is the icing on the cake but you've got to deliver a good cake to begin with so finding things that were funny that were visceral that people would remember that um uh that kind of stood out in their minds those things came out of that and i've got various versions that i do and would find different ways that work and different ones you know there's loads i used to do that i don't do anymore that i naturally dropped because i found a different or funny way of of doing it um uh but yeah it came out of yeah creating memorable moments of process rather than just memorable reveals at the end of a trick
1: and um are you comfortable with doing those sort of things
0: yeah very much so you know the i don't you know it's it's an interesting one because there is a you know a lot of thought goes into what feels like nonsense on stage um but that idea of like just the actual approach of it being the idea being like i touch you i can read your mind now that could be Scary, it could be uh, a sexual connotation. It, and, you know, I don't want any of those thoughts or connotations with it. It has to be innocent and fun and playful and like a puppy dog. So everything builds within that, which is also in the character. Um, and I want to create moment moments where audiences go, oh my God, oh, when I drink the water. <laughs> yeah. um, because that is like a visceral response that you don't normally get with mentalism. Mentalism, for me, I want to make it as visual and memorable as possible. And those moments help do that. Um. And the truth is, you know, I, I, I don't think about any of that stuff when I'm doing the show, and, uh, you know, I don't think it, you know, licking someone's earlobe, which is a funny bit. Uh, I, you know, ninety percent of the time they won't let. I say uh, I do a gag, and I uh, say that I have to lick their earlobe, and if they say yes, I will do it. Most of the time they don't, uh, but if they say yes, we'll go for it, and it doesn't really bother me. I mean, the earlobe's probably one of the cleaner parts of the body. Uh, the interesting thing will be what happens when eventually we go back to live shows and what I can and can't do you know I was doing this stuff up until the 16th of March when the US tour was stopped Um, and even with audiences in masks it was still happening I mean as we go forward I'll feel like we're in a real world again when I can put all that stuff back in but maybe that won't ever happen and maybe I need to start to find different approaches for those things.
2: Have you ever got sick from doing it?
0: uh i don't know i used to is i used to get sick a lot and then i started doing it and then i got sick less and i was like oh maybe it's better for my immune system um i mean i definitely wouldn't recommend it to anyone uh, partly because it's my bit and i'll be furious but also because it is gross and my doctor said i shouldn't be doing it but i still do it because it's a you know there's a couple of moments the water bit the uh the kind of the reveal at the end of control which i don't like to fully expose but that bit where uh i'm i'm i kind of uh, looking ridiculous, you know, there are bits where I was like, Oh, that's a funny idea. And then I did it and it went well. I was like, Oh, great. Now I've got to keep that in the show and do that every night. Um, those things don't equate. But in the moment, uh, if I thought about it, I'd probably be grossed out by it. But um, I don't. So I just do it.
1: And um, do you ever, what's the craziest reaction you've got from, for example, when you drank someone's water that they've just know uh, spat back into the bottle.
0: <laughs> um, it's normally like it's a it's a very similar reaction everywhere. It's grossed out laughter. Some oh my god knows, and you know I build it up in such a way that they think I'm gonna do it, and then I don't, and then I do it. So I kind of can get three or four laughs out of you know. Originally I used to get one laugh out of that moment. I now probably get yeah three or four laughs out of the same moment just by finding new beats. Um, and you know audience reactions change around the world. Um, in South Africa people are very vocal and uh really physical with their reactions um in america people are always incredibly loud and uh and kind of really want to be part of that enjoyment and show people their enjoyment around it um but you know it's it is that whole routine where that is the drinking the bottle of spit is part of it has all these moments where i'm trying to create laughs and reactions um which you don't in what would normally inherently with traditional mentalism would just be a silent moment where people will be watching you perform some demonstration of something for me it's about creating a moment of ah i want them to be going ah my god ah, because they're having a reaction to it um and people remember those feelings they don't remember what they see so much
1: and sort of moving on um you've had quite a few shows um in the past how did you get them
0: um good question what shows tv theater
1: uh yeah uh tv for example killer magic Um, and
0: yeah like killer magic and stuff um so just through doing what i do and working hard at it you know killer magic was produced by um anthony owen uh who very sadly uh passed away a few uh two years ago now um and Anthony was a, a wonderful man. And he. I went to see him after my first Edinburgh show. And he was, you know, the king of TV magic at that point. He was doing Darren. I was like, look, this is what I do. And he said to me, I've already got a mind reader, so why do I need you? But stay in touch. Um, and he was right. You know, I was doing Darren-esque stuff then. And it made was one of those things that made me keep working on who I am. And then 10 years later, Killer Magic Was on the scene that he was creating, and uh, very kindly Alan Hudson suggested me for it. And Anthony was like, "Oh yeah, of course." And I stayed in touch with Anthony briefly through those years, every now and again, with inviting to a show or something. And suddenly, it was I was the right character and the right fit for the right show. Um, and none of this stuff happens instantly. Like, uh, Chris Cox's mind-boggling magic, we'd been working on for like two years, pitching it, and then it literally—I got a phone call saying, "Oh, the BBC needs some a quick turnaround show. They've commissioned it. You're filming it in two weeks." And I had two weeks. And no budget to create all of that material and there's some stuff I uh, you know for that limitation I'm quite proud of what it is in terms of what we got to, uh, done in two weeks and um, there's a lot of stuff I'm not very proud of in terms of I'd like to have it to have been better but within the constraints it was, was fine Um, but that came out of just constantly persevering and, and all of those things it's knowing what you want to do and what makes you different and then finding the people that you want to try and create that show with or pitch that show to uh, and you know there's it's never been easier i'm i'm just past the youtube generation really if, if i was born a couple of years uh, later i'd probably be I'd put my stuff on youtube rather than on tv um but now you know it's never been easy to just create a show that's different stick it on youtube and then transcend that to tv people and um, be who says you need tv people these days you know are more people are watching stuff on youtube than they are on tv
2: what were some of the highlights of doing killer magic
0: um i remember it as a honestly not as a particularly happy time i was at a it was a very stressful environment because we were churning out a lot of show in a short space of time and alongside that so we were filming it in glasgow and i was living in london and i was still working at radio 1 at the time so i was spending 3 or 4 days in glasgow filming and then the other few days in London working at Radio One. So, went basically six months without a day off. At the same time, I was planning a wedding and buying a flat. So, it was just a very stressful time for me. Um, and I was mainly just remember being tired a lot. Um, uh, but, uh, and there was, you know, the, I came at that world having produced in radio for nearly like eight, nine years at that point. And there were people on that show who hadn't really worked with anyone else before. So, there's a lot of issue of people's egos and people how they can work with other people and stuff and just people finding their feet and all of those the politics and stuff which go with that um but i made some very good friends out of that uh i have some fond memories of like when i look back at that stupid stuff we did and you know i was it's interesting because i always wanted to do a tv magic show And when i was doing it it was just i really wasn't enjoying it um as much as i thought i would be and that whole idea of like oh, i'm doing the thing i always wanted to do but i don't really love it that sort of you know, I always feel a bit depressed when I get to do something I want to do because then I just think, okay, what's next? I can never really enjoy it, and a lot of that is totally on me as a person. Um, but there is, uh, you know, there was a, you know, the creative side of it was great fun working with Noel, working with Ben, working with Anthony on creating this material and these tricks, and working. You know, there's it's funny. There's a trick on there which I do, which is to do with birthday cards, and. That trick we had to come up with the day before because the venue we were meant to do a different trick in fell through. So I'd spent all week writing and creating a trick, which I can no longer do. So we had like one day to come up with this new trick. Um, and I think it's a really good trick. And I look back at it now and I genuinely can't remember the method of doing that trick. I don't remember how I did it. Um, so things like that and go like, oh yeah, that was fun. Um, uh, but it was a um, yeah, it was mainly a very stressful time. But I'm not, that's what not did... so I'm not incredibly grateful for that experience and getting to do it. Um, I could be just go like, oh, yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. Everyone was great. Um, but it was, you know, I think there's a lot of lack of honesty sometimes in, in the world in terms of things that look amazing. There might be really hard work and it's just remembering not everything is as great as it looks.
1: What did you work in uh, Radio 1 as?
0: Um, I was a producer there. So I started off uh, like I literally started answering the phones uh, as my first job there, making the tea for people. And, you know, I was lucky that the three things I always loved were magic, theater and radio and I have managed to have been lucky enough to work with all three. Um, and I would do I'd work at Radio One and I'd take the summer off to go and do Edinburgh. And then like when I was touring, I'd work at Radio One during the day, leave, go get catch a train, meet my tour manager, do the show, get driven home with the tour manager in the van, have a couple of hours of sleep, get up, do Radio One can follow that you know i was basically working two jobs at the same time to be able to do what i love to do um so yeah so uh, it was great because i got to exercise a very different part of my brain and i believe i'm a better producer because i was a performer and i'm a better performer because i was a producer
1: what did you so you sort of mentioned it but what did you did you learn anything from working on radio one that that's you found really useful when when you were performing
0: uh collaboration working with other people being a good team player other people making you better all of that comes from radio one um the idea of being able to churn out material we had a radio show on every day so we'd finish the show and go great okay what are we doing tomorrow constantly being able to creatively come up with something and refine it and find things that work and how to fix them if they don't work and know there's something there but i need to keep working on it all of that was part of the natural process the hamster wheel of constantly doing the show um All of those things, I think, uh, fed through. And also, you know, the weird thing is, it's now like doing Zoom shows. That radio part of my brain has come back into life in terms of like being able to technically do what I need to do to stage manage the Zoom show, do all the technical things while still performing. That's what you do on radio. You're you're doing all the pressing all the buttons while presenting the show. Um, you know, that put me in great training for being able to do Zoom stuff.
1: And are you thinking of making any other TV shows in the future?
0: I mean, I'd like to. I, it's very much not my choice. It's uh, I'm often coming up with ideas and, and pitching things and there's been stuff that looks like it's going to happen and then hasn't. And then uh, that's often the case. I think you just keep working on ideas and hope someone will eventually. The problem with it is it's always you're waiting for someone to say yes to something um and you know i you know there's a lot of tv i've done where i'm not particularly proud of it there's some bits i'm super proud like my performance on uh on the thing called the project in australia which is their biggest uh tv show their big talk show you know i'm super proud of who i am on that and the character i get across of me and the jokes and the ad libs and the trick um so trying to find things that make me different uh in tv Uh, difficult to then try and turn that into what the show is which isn't just a collection of tricks so i'd like to um when eventually i have an idea which someone wants to buy
1: um sort of talking about edinburgh fringe again um what was the reason that you were like oh i want to go there and perform
0: uh i used to watch a tv show when i was younger uh i was like 16 or something and it was called edinburgh or bust i think it was on channel four and it was like a documentary about comedians doing the edinburgh festival i said oh that looks so much fun and then i used to go up to edinburgh and watch comedians and just i again i never thought that i would do it i just didn't think that i wouldn't do it it just naturally was like oh i should go and do it i should do an edinburgh show so I, in uni, was like, I'm going to go do an Edinburgh show, a mind-reading show at Edinburgh. And I saved up some student loan to be able to afford it. And I remember getting a call saying, do you want to come and do... And they applying to all the venues. And a lot of venues said no, and one venue said yes. And I was like, great, I'll go do it. And that went well. And then I remember applying again for the following year. And I'd started at Radio 1 then and getting a call saying, do you want to do it? You need to decide by the end of today. I was like, OK, yeah. And, you know, it costs a huge sum of money to go and do it. And I had to get all the time off work. But it just, you know, I think when a superpower you have when you're young, which I have less, you know, I have more fear now. I am uh, scared of doing stuff of failing and all those things where then I didn't care. And I think that's a superpower you have when you're young that you can just say yes and go and do stuff. And I cared, I wanted it to be good, but I didn't fear doing it. And kind of, like, oh, what if it wasn't good? It's like, just go out and do it.
2: How did you, um, I guess, choose and curate the tricks to create an act for the end of the fringe? And I guess, how did that also kind of develop over the period of doing it?
0: Good, good question. Hmm. I did five shows in total, and at first, it, they were those shows were a collection of tricks. I found tricks I liked and interesting ways to perform them and put them together with a loose theme and narrative. Um, not narrative, sorry, a loose theme, a structure, you know, and which came out of my love of theatre was to find a structure and a, a reason to hold all this stuff together. Um, and you know. I always wanted to be a stage performer so Edinburgh was a natural place for me to go and do shows. Um and the first one went well so I did a second one and then that was slightly better than the first one. I found a better structure, a better theme, a better um way to connect everything together and bring make those tricks feel more like a cohesive show rather than a collection of tricks. I did a third show wasn't as good. Um I then but I did three shows in a row. I then took a year off and then my fourth show was much better because I spent the time thinking What is my one sentence from that show? And that fourth show was um, if I could really read minds, what would I do? And that was kind of my starting point. So that led to me doing like a lottery prediction and my clothing routine that I do in the uh, Illusionists that started in that Edinburgh show, a different version of it. Um, And then I took another year off. I taught that show around the UK and New Zealand. I I think I took two years off and then came up with um, a narrative show. So it was a play with tricks, a one man play. Oh, well, it's sort of a rom-com it's me telling a story about a relationship and tricks all along the way and everything coming together in the audience helping invent that story and it was totally different to anything that had been done before and you know I think Derek DelGuardia recently has done the best version of that type of thing in terms of a piece of theatre which is has magic in it but isn't necessarily a magic show that was my thought it's like how do I do something which is more than a mind-reading show and therefore it was to tell a story with those tricks um and then I haven't done Edinburgh since then. Since then, I've uh, been, I toured that show for about two years. I was very, you know, I was lucky that that show was a good success. I'd love to do it. I keep thinking at some point I'll bring that show back and do it in a on a proper run at a theatre somewhere. Um, but, you know, since then, The Illusionists and Impossible have taken up my world, and I've just been lucky enough to go and do two sort of 15, 20, 12, 15-minute slots in these big budget magic shows with sort of a couple of different magicians.
1: Would you recommend uh, magicians and mentalists to do the Edinburgh Fringe?
0: Uh, If that's what you want to do, then yes. If you want to be a stage performer or cabaret performer, then it's a great place to go. There's other places you can do it. It doesn't have to be Edinburgh. Edinburgh is a very expensive way to do it. But if you want to go out, and there is no way to get better than just doing it. So getting that flight time, doing 31 hour shows in a row, being able to fix and change things every night. That is the joy of Edinburgh. It makes you better. Um, and if that is what you want to do, then totally it's a thing to do. You know, I was super comfortable and confident and good on stage when I got the opportunity to do my first West End run because I'd done five years of Edinburgh or five Edinburgh shows and toured them and done all that stuff. So I was I'd learn all my craft by doing it. Um, and that's what Edinburgh really allows you to do
1: great thank you so much chris for coming on and now to finish the podcast we're gonna do a quick fire round of questions Um, i'll
0: try and be quick with my answers then i'm normally just (laughs) chat a lot (laughs)
1: <laughs> um first one what is your favorite way to uh say you read somebody's mind so drinking you know their water that they drank uh, yeah, yeah, like the and oh yeah yeah the water bit is
0: my favorite bit uh yeah uh because I remember clearly where I was I was having lunch with Matt Edmondson in a park while we were at radio one coming up with some ideas and I had a bottle of water and we were playing with ideas I was like what if I just got you to backwash into this water and drank it and we both laughed And I was like oh that'd be funny and then I tried it <laughs> On stage, and it instantly got a raising reaction. I was like, Oh, yeah, that's that's gonna that's a keeper forever. Um, yeah, that's my favorite thing because I just and also finding all those like I told about finding new beats by doing it, so now I know where all those extra laughs are, and I constantly find new little moments with those things. What's a tip you'd give to your younger self? Um, don't panic. Oh, no, I don't really panic. Don't try not to stress so much, try not you know, I'm quite control freaky over taking control over everything and sort of you have to in your early days because it is all you and you know, the joy of doing The Illusionist or something is I have a team that are there with the show who I trust implicitly so I don't have to stress about lights or sound or props being in the right place or my costume being clean because people do that for me. Um, I, I suppose the tip is to try and enjoy it more. I remember I was playing Broadway at the end of 2019 um, being, you know, it was a total dream come true. I couldn't believe I was playing Broadway, but my whole time there, I was also thinking, oh, this will never happen again. So there was always a kind of, I just want to try and enjoy stuff and live in the moment more. And I think my younger self and current self could do with following that advice.
1: If you could keep one book, what would it be?
0: Oh, uh, either. uh, Can I, can I give you three? One. Uh, (laughs) Ah, okay. Um, right so i'm just dis- we'll give us the all, three and then they're all novels okay so there's no okay. magic in them it's uh, a book called a little life a book called uh, essays in love by alan debotton and a book called one day by david nichols um and i'd probably keep a little life because it's longer uh and i could read it for more um but they're kind of all books which have uh, affected who i am as a person and i've all had all, all of those books have inspired something that I created material-wise. You know, I think out of that, what I could say to people is, you know, all my biggest inspirations never come from magic. They come from theatre or books or films or TV or something else. And then I bring that into magic. My inspirations never come from watching magic.
2: And then if you could only perform one effect or kind of piece, what would it be?
0: Oh, well you know, for the last five years, I've only really performed uh, my control Chris Cox routine and my dressing room routine. I think it would probably be control, which is my version of a and a where people get to think of what they want to see me do and I do it. And there's loads of beats and there's loads of structure along the way, but it's totally, I genuinely go out on stage and I don't know what I'm going to do that night. Uh, so it's fully improv, but with a really strong structure that I've built behind it. And I've you know been crafting that routine for since 2011 that the oh, yeah. first version of that routine appeared in a show um and it always it gets better every time i do it because i can make little changes every time um and i never really know what's going to happen so it's always just fun it's exhausting and fun uh and i think really strong character really strong mentalism and really strong laughs along the way
1: if you could uh meet any magician or mentalist who would it be
0: um oh i don't know like i've been you know, incredibly fortunate enough to meet the people that I would have said if I hadn't met them. <laughs> um, you know, people. By the like, way,
1: that's uh, dead or uh, alive. So. Dead
0: or alive? Yeah. Um, I have met the dead Ones as well. Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> um, I. You know, someone like maybe Alexander, off of Ask Alexander fame. You know, he's a first mentalist. I suppose that was around. Um, I think he'd be. Yeah, probably him. I suppose he'd be interesting. I saw his turban. David Copperfield in his museums got his turban. Um, And it was fascinating to see that and to think of um, what he was doing then and correlate it to what I'm doing now.
1: And what tip would you give to uh, any magician or mentalist out there?
0: Find who you are as a performer, find who your character is in that version of you. And it'll make your life a lot easier because everything comes from that rather than having to start at a trick can take a trick and turn it into how would i do this um and it's find those bits of you that you want to play up or those bits of you you want to create and really flesh them out and give a reason behind it um the only unique thing in magic is really is you so what makes you different to anyone else
1: Thank you, Chris, so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing everything yeah, you, you did with us.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. It is um you know, I'm very much I see myself as a performer rather than a magician and I'm not really part of the magic world. Um, so it's always flattered flattering to be invited onto anything and to uh,